I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast. This week you have me, Dave, and a guest. Our guest this week is none other than Dazi Zhang. If you don't know Dazi, you might want to uh, get acquainted. He took second place at last year's Carry Optics Nationals. So let's go ahead and bring him in. Hi, Dazi. Hi, Dave. Hi, everyone. All right, Dazi, why don't you take a second and go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Yeah. So, um, hi everyone. I'm Dazi Zen. Um, I was actually born and raised in a small city in the northern part of China. Um, so after college in 1998, I think I came to the United States for graduate study and I've stayed here since that time. Um, this year I'm 47 years old and, uh, have a full-time job as a software architect. I have two children, both boys. One is 18 years old going to college and the other 14 going to high school this year. Um, and when it comes to shooting, um, shooting guns, <laughs> to say that I'm a late starter is, uh, is an understatement. Yeah, I bought my first rifle and handgun uh, in, I think it's 2014, and I was 39 years old. And that's when I first shot um, a handgun, in fact. so. Um, and at that time, I was really into PRS style, long distance, old action shooting. So I, I constantly go to this range where they have uh, 1,000 yard shooting lanes. And they happen to be hosting some IDPA matches. Um, I think it's every month on Saturday morning. And one Saturday morning, I just stopped by and watched them shoot. And uh, kind of instantly, I got fascinated. Um, it's it's fast paced and it's dynamic. I mean, it's everything I wanted to do. And so I got hooked into IDPA, um, shot IDPA for a year and a half, then moved down to USPSA in late 2015. Then I have been shooting USPSA exclusively since that time. So that's kind of a short yeah, intro for me, for myself, yeah. Okay, wow, very interesting. All right. Um, so as I mentioned uh, before we started, I'm going to ask you a few personal questions and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of how Dazi got to where he is. All right. So number one, we always ask, what's your favorite movie? Um, my favorite movie is Interstellar. Uh, well, overall, I might, I'm really into hard sci-fi. So yeah, that's definitely the best movie. Like, <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't think I've seen that one, but it sounds very sci fi ish. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not just a regular sci fi, it's pretty hard sci fi. So, there's a difference between sci fi versus hard sci fi. Okay, what's that difference? Well, hard sci fi's usually uh, are based really on real science and uh, it's not fantasy mm. or, yeah, or just people imagining things, it has science bases and kind of realistic you can project into the future uh, you can see that's happening um yeah in the distance future distant future so okay more fact than fiction uh yeah kind of yep okay mm -hmm. all right i like that i'll have to check that out interstellar yeah. favorite book uh favorite book yeah along the same line uh so there's a book called the blind site the author is called Jason Watts. I think he's a Canadian uh, scientist and also an author. And this book is really, I mean, in my mind, it's a classic for hard sci-fi. The Blind Side, okay. The blind Side, yeah. So there is a sequel uh, called Echopraxia. Um, it's, it's pretty good as well, but I like the first book better. Yeah. So what does the first book deal with? Um, it's kind of a first contact scenario but it's yeah i don't want to give everybody a spoiler but it's not as you would expect <laughs> so yeah but it's okay I mean, yeah it's kind of a first contact story 
Okay, so what by first contact you mean like alien life? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So going along with that, um, Huggy likes to ask the question, which is very uh, fictional sci-fi. Your favorite superhero? <laughs> um, superhero. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty old school. Uh, Superman is definitely my most favorite superhero. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's the first superhero I got to know. I, I remember I was in elementary school, 1982 or 83. I don't remember, but yeah, it was the first movie they kind of introduced in China from, I guess, Hollywood. Mm. And it's it it yeah, I, I was so impressed. I still remember the feeling I after I watched that movie. Uh, I think I was like second or third grade. Superman is definitely my favorite. <laughs> And if you think about it, I mean, first contact, alien life form. There you go. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> All right. So what, what you have, um, very interesting that you've shot PRS, as you see behind me. Um, I got my start in long range stuff. Uh, what is your favorite gun and caliber? Well, right now it's definitely what I'm shooting. I shoot a portfolio stock two in nine mil uh that's absolutely my most favorite handgun (laughs) uh i sold all by by the way i sold all my rifles just to purchase ammo and gear to get into (laughs) uspsa so i i can see that (laughs) i don't have any left right now (laughs) (laughs) oh goodness (laughs) all right so the personal question I want to ask you then, the one specifically for you, what was your first rifle and handgun in 2014? Yeah, so the first rifle uh, was a Savage 10T. I think the T stands for tactical. I did I did purchase an aftermarket uh, chassis, and uh, I think I had a Night Force scope, and I really loved it. It's By the way, it's in 308 caliber. Um, it worked pretty well. Um, the okay. first handgun, yeah, I think it's a HK P30 in nine mil. That my that's my first ever handgun. Yeah. Cool. Now, um, how many PRS matches did you shoot? Uh, one. <laughs> I sh- yeah. So yeah, I shot officially. I shot one match. That's it. Um, but I okay. have been, yeah, I've been going to that range quite frequently back then. Um, I would say if I hadn't watch that IDPA match, I probably will continue to be shooting yeah, PRS matches. But it's yeah. a much more expensive sport that PRS. Yeah. Very any any rifle stuff is way more expensive. That's true. Yeah. So I, I just um I haven't shot it in a few years. I made the transition from NRA or bullseye style target shooting out to a thousand yards. Yeah. to uspsa and idpa and holy cow it's uh yeah. the ammo alone back then was almost 200 dollars for the match so yes it's mm-hmm. expensive very very yeah. so you said you are from mao city you mean where i grew up originally yes it's 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 a very small city i mean i don't i don't think anyone would know here uh it's a small city near the border between china and mongolia so it's oh wow north. yeah yeah um no one so, probably knows about it yeah it's a very i i did i did go to college in shanghai i think most people probably know shanghai and <laughs> at least from movies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, so you had nice warm temperate winters then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not in my hometown, right? Yeah. Holy cow. How cold did it get there in the wintertime? I would say it's, well, I think it's about the same as, let's see, Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. Some okay. Upper, upper part of Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. So it gets a little, a little on the nippy side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you live where, where do you live now? Oh, I live in Texas. I moved here in 2008 and have been here since then. Um, yeah. So then I think I got this right. You, you actually moved from China to Wisconsin, didn't you initially to go to school? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Wow. You just liked that 
temperature so much, you just, oh, where can I go that's exactly the same? No, I actually hate snow. Officially, I hate snow, and that's why I moved here down to Texas, and I love the weather here. Okay. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So 2014, now, how did you run across, that was when you bought your rifle, your handgun, you started shooting pistol. Where did you see the IDPA match? Uh, where I think it's it's a range in Greenville, Texas. So I live in the north part of Dallas, and uh, about thirty or forty minutes from my house, there's a range with one thousand yard um, shooting lanes. It's called Jacob's Plain um, Shooting Range in Greenville, near Greenville, and that's where they hold monthly IDPA matches. Yeah. So that's when I first saw how this action pistol works. It's just shocking. I mean, that's my first impression. I mean, how can you let people run with a pistol and keep shooting, like running around? It's just amazing. Yeah. It's, it's so then so when, you saw, when you saw that and thought that was running around with a pistol, what did you think yeah. the first time you saw a USPSA match? <laughs> well, by that time, I kind of already kind of accustomed to this. So there's not much shock. Yeah, for the first uh, USPSC match, I kind of, yeah, I, by that time I also took, I think I've already taken a class from Ben. Um, so yeah, I, I think oh. I just gradually rolled over into USPSC because everybody at my club says, Dazi, you're fast. You should already do USPSC, you know, like, okay. So yeah, um, I think it's, it's a very natural transition from IDPA to USPSC for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can see that. Are you going to challenge JJ for his national championship in IDPA too? <laughs> no, I haven't shot IDPA for a long time. No, my gun is not legal. Um, I think the new rule might make it legal. I don't know. But yeah, right now I'm just, no, I, I, I don't have any plan to shoot IDPA. It's, I mean, the, given the time I have, I all I can do is focus on USPSA. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Well, shoot, I had a question. Oh, when did uh, you said you took a class from Ben? When was that? Um, so 2015. So I think it's about May or June of 2015. I took his fundamentals class. That's the first ever class I've taken from any professional coach or shooter. Um, it, was, it was really good. Yeah. Okay. I imagine it was. Was yeah. that in Wisconsin where you took that? No here in Texas. Yeah. So he, he came down okay. here and yeah, he gave classes and I took his classes twice. Um, and that's all the classes I've ever taken is first is his fund fundamentals class in 2015. Then the next year, year after that 2016, I took his, um, more advanced, it's called drills and skills. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are definitely worth taking. I mean, at least for people who are getting into the, yeah, action pistol sports. So. so how long did it take you once you started shooting USPSA to be a grandmaster? Um, a year. Let's see. So I shot the first USPSA match 20, uh, October 2015, I think. I got the mastering master 2016. Um, actually, a year and a half, probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I started A class, then three months M, then I think a year, yes, a year after master, I got the GM. Uh, so it's about a year and a half. Okay. That's still pretty quick. Wow. Now, what is your, what did your training look like back then? Um, back then it's a lot of fundamental stuff. Yeah. Um, both dry firing and live firing, uh, focused exclusively on all the basic mechanics, um, making sure it, you know, they're right. Um, I think what Ben's class taught me, the most important thing is to be able to self-diagnose. Um, so if you can self-diagnose, you can be your own coach. I think that's, I still believe that's probably the best way um, to go. I mean, given that most people in the sport are not professional shooters, right? They have full-time jobs, they have family, and all the time and money you have, you probably wanted to kind of, use them wisely. I, I do believe you have to take 
some classes to begin with. Um, but once you have the ability to diagnose your your own shooting, your own training, and you can you can devise a plan for yourself and move upwards from there. Um, that's probably the most efficient use of your time and money, in my opinion. Now, did you, when you were self-diagnosing, were you um, videoing yourself or anything? Yeah. So I do video myself in all the live firing sessions. Uh, dry, fire, dry firing practices sometimes, um, but not all the time. Um, I think, especially when I'm hitting like uh, hitting a roadblock, I have to video myself and slow-mo it and just to see what, what went wrong. I mean, it's kind of very important. So videoing, I would highly recommend if you have the budget, get a action camera, just put it on the range when you're just doing your thing, let it roll. And when you go home, you watch uh, each of your drills and you can use slow-mo to analyze, to watch. Um, and especially if you have access to other professional shooters, like the, the very best shooters, JJ, Max, Ben, etc. And so, if you have footage of them, compare it with yours, and it's really helpful. Yeah, I I did that a lot. Um, I mean, I still do that today, so it helps. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't. You're you seem like a humble guy, um, but you can't leave yourself out of the picture. I mean, I'm sure your friends uh, ask you questions about shooting because you're not too shabby yourself. Uh, well, I I'm just a. I guess I'm just a hobbyist. I still define myself as a hobbyist. You're a I, casual shooter. Yeah, there you exactly. Go. Casual shooter, but I love it really much, uh, very, very much. And uh, I put all my spare time and my energy into this, but I don't regret anything. Even if I don't win anything, I just like it. Yeah, so that's how it is for me. So I've noticed um, in your Instagram, do you have, what do you have? recording from your point of view is it aim cam glasses or do uh, you just have a gopro uh, i actually have an uh so on the hat i i put a called the insta 360 go 2. it's a tiny one it's like less than half an ounce heavy and it's like you you put it on your hat you wouldn't even know it exists so it's i i really like it yeah the um, the other camera I usually use is the GoPro Max. I put it on the ground and just let it roll. Yeah, so okay. that would yeah, take I'm... the third person view. Yeah. Okay, because I've noticed that y you can see part of your uh, optic in your first person view. So that's why mm -hmm. I was like, oh, what's he using? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you actually attach a small one on your hat. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah. What What is the optic you run on your Tanfo. Uh, I have an SRO 2.5 MOA. Okay, it looked like an SRO, but yeah, uh, wasn't it? There are so many now that are getting big and round. It's like, is yeah. it an SRO or is it something else? Yeah. Okay, how do you like it? I think it's the it's a, definitely the best uh, for USPSC shooting. Yeah, I have I have used many other brands. I used to run the uh, the Fast Fire uh, by Boris. I think okay. I destroyed like 12 or 14 of them. Um, I switched, wow. Yeah, I switched to Venom. Um, Venom is slightly better, but still, I mean, probably like eight of them. And then I switched to Romeo 3 Max. I think Romeo 3 Max is pretty solid, but I just couldn't get them to stay. I mean, the zero kind of shifts from time to time. I couldn't figure out why. So after trying mm. like five or six of them, I switched to SRO and that's where I settled and haven't had any problem. Well, I did have one problem with SRO. One of them, I had four. One of them, the glass just fell off after like 10,000 round. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's just, just yeah, the, I think they probably had some kind of defective on the glue. So I sent mm -hmm. it back. Yeah, they glued the glass back, sent the same um, optic back to me. And I keep using it as it's on my practice gun. So I think this is like almost 20,000 rounds later and still holds. So oh, okay. I think they're pretty solid. Yeah. I believe the first time it's just, yeah, the glue was probably defective or something. 
I don't have any problem with the other three SROs I have. So it sounds like you might have gotten that five o'clock Friday optic that the the last one the person had to glue together. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, I'm I'm sure you know Juanzik. We've yeah. had him on, and I mean, he swears by him. He's got two that he has over a hundred thousand rounds on each one. So yeah, I don't I don't think there's any more that has to be said about that. So that's, yeah, I can see that's SROs solid. last. Yeah, I can see SROs would last. 100,000 to 100,000 should, yeah, should be doable. Yeah. yeah, I've got, I, I have an SRO on my Canic and, um, I have an RMR on my carry gun. So I definitely like the Trigicon. Mm -hmm. They're just a little on the expensive side. I wish they'd come down yeah. in price a little bit. Yeah. All right. So you were the silver medalist last year at carry optics nationals. You were right on JJ's behind. Um, you basically classify yourself as a hobbyist or casual shooter. Um, when you got into the sport, did you anticipate or expect or intend to be where you're at today? Um, not really, yeah. But I, I do always have this, I guess, you can call it a dream. <laughs> It's more of a long-term goal because you know I'm not young, right? 47, but I do hope I I would someday be able to represent the United States for the world shoot. So that's kind of my personal dream. But I, be honest, I last year was uh, I told I mean I told my friends and buddies that I was hoping I could get top 20 going into the match. That's it. Yeah, because I know there's so many good shooters last year. It's not yeah. just like any other year, right? So no. Uh, so getting second place is totally out of my. I mean, it, far exceeding my expectations. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, that was the. I mean, as far as for carry optics, as far as it's concerned, I mean, that was the most stacked field yeah. ever. So to come in second, you know, is huge. So that was pretty amazing. And again, I mean, you were 98.5%. So you were only one and a half percent off of JJ, which is not much when it comes to USPSA. So that's pretty solid. Yeah, thank you. Did you, did you, so come day three, because I shot nationals too, um, come day three, did you know where you were and, and did any of that affect you? Um, yeah, I know. I check scores after each day. I don't check scores during the day. Um, so okay. I kind of know where everybody is. Um, but the funny thing is, I, I don't feel like it has any impact on me. Um, because I always know, like, you, before the match is complete, all the standing, all the rankings are, you know, it's just temporary, right? You don't right. know how the people is going to shoot the last flag of the match and uh yeah i just did exactly what i did for the first two days um i i don't think i take into consideration of my standing or ranking uh at the end of the second day at all when i started the third day i just shot the match at my pace and uh yeah did what i could so uh, i have to say it's probably the best strategy though because mm -hmm. i mean that's yeah that's how you i mean especially for big matches that's that's definitely how you get consistent performance. Um, but that's probably also an area I can improve because I'm, I'm still, a, I guess I'm relatively um, young to the sport. And there are definitely a lot of knowledge, experience I need to gain uh, to really be able to repeat that performance in the future. So yeah, I know I've, I've listened to your pod, podcast of other Good shooters and uh, i mean i'm i'm just learning how they deal with the mental aspect of the game um especially for big matches i think some of them probably check the scores every stage and make different plans which i i mean personally i don't know i can do that or maybe it's something i need to learn how to do it <laughs> so yeah you know, it seems like your strategy worked perfectly fine. You know what I mean? Like you said, you were very consistent the whole way. Um, there are some very top 
level shooters that I've talked about on the podcast before where, you know, they'll burn a stage down. They'll be number one and just crush everybody. But then the next one, they'll be ranked 119. You know, they don't have that consistent across the board um, performance. And I think that's definitely the key to it. And uh, it seems like you definitely have that down. I can I can imagine there's only a few people that could look at scores every stage and plan something, you know, based on where their standing is. That that seems to me to be very difficult. You'd have to have a very thorough knowledge of the sport. Absolutely, yeah, that's definitely a science, uh, yeah, or a skill that is going to demand a lot of understanding, a lot of experience, um, yeah. Yeah, I, that's that USPSA math you've got to have a very good grasp on to know, yeah. you know, okay, this is my stage, this is what I need to do. Yeah, that's that's a lot. Mm -hmm. Wow. I feel like it would take you out of your focus for what you need to do shooting-wise. But again, that's yeah. why those top-level guys can do it. Um, mm -hmm. So your goal last year was just to be top 20, huh? Mm -hmm. Yep. Wow. Okay. So what, what I'm going to jump around a little bit here because you, you've answered one of my questions. So I want to go back to it later, but that's the world shoot because that is one of, one of my questions. But um, this year, uh, I assume you're going to be back at CMP shooting mm -hmm. nationals. Mm -hmm. yeah. This year, you're going to be on the super squad. Do you expect that that's going to have any effect on you? Um, it's hard to say. Um, so I did actually, I did email, uh, the match director, see if I can not, I mean, I can stay on a different squad. <laughs> Personally, I don't like the super squad, uh, I guess schedule. Uh, I like shoot in the morning, uh, shooting in the morning. So super squad is PM, uh, AM and PM. So there are two PMs. I'd like to have AM, PM and AM. Um, but I think there's definitely a justification for uh, potential winners to be on the same squad. Uh, I was given that justification and I agree. So I will be on the super squad. Um, psychologically, I think it will have some impact, but it's hard to see what kind of impact that would be. Um, because I, I honestly always consider myself as an, a kind of underdog, right? I'm not there to, this is probably just personality. I'm not there to win. I, I know a lot of uh, sports psychologists would tell you, you have to think you're the winner, right? You always want your, yourself to be number one. But I, I'm just wanting to you know, perform uh, to my level and um, have a satisfactory match. That's kind of my mental game for most of my matches. I wanted to perform to the level I am at and not trying to beat anyone or trying to win a trophy or anything if i shoot a satisfactory match even if i don't win i'm really happy yeah so okay that's insightful and and that's awesome i mean that doesn't that doesn't let you down either to where you know you're disappointed at the end of a match unless you didn't perform right. well but as long as you're performing well you're like hey this is a great time yeah exactly yep mm -hmm. okay so is your goal this year the same as last year? Top 20 again, or is it different? Um, I would say it's the same because I know okay. this year is going to be even bigger. Uh, yeah. yeah. I believe Christian is going to come in. Jacob is probably going to shoot oh, no. field too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. If that's, Christian is there, yeah, yeah that's going to that's gonna ratchet up everything. It's just my speculation, by the way. Yeah, I, I'm just following him on Instagram and seeing him doing his Shadow 2 carry optics and stuff. It's, yeah, right. it's crazy. Right, and why would he be doing it otherwise? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I've always, you know, I've, I've, I've I talked to somebody about it. I don't remember who, but there's a big enough time gap between carry optics and the big four, which is open, for any of those open guys to shoot carry optics nationals and still give them plenty of time mm -hmm. to get back on their open gun and yeah. feel comfortable and be ready for nationals. So I could see this being an even bigger year, which 
for USPSA is awesome. So yeah. mm-hmm. I agree. De- definitely ratches up the um, pucker factor, though, for sure. <laughs> yep. So what does your training look like now? Like this year um, and last year, what does your training look like? Um, every year, I kind of stay the same training plan or cadence. Um, so I usually, of course, I dry fire. Whenever I'm not on the range doing live fire, I would do dry fire that day. Um, so usually 30, 45 minutes. Um, live fire, I try to, I mean, my minimum is once per week, but I always try to squeeze a second one in, but sometimes I just couldn't. Um, and before a major match, I would do try to do three live fires a week, like a week or two weeks before the major match. Um, so it's been consistent for for the whole time I've been shooting USPS. There's really no major fluctuation up or down uh, in terms of my training schedule. Yeah. Do you, okay, so I have a couple questions about that. Sure. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and ask them now because I'll forget one if I don't. Okay. One, do you feel like having the exact same training schedule or routine that you ever plateau? And two, um, what do you, when you ratchet up your live fire, like say for nationals coming up in September, mm-hmm. uh, I'll guess around mid-August, you'll go to three times live fire. Mm-hmm. What are you trying to gain? Why are you adding the additional live fires in there? So those are yeah. the two questions. Right. So uh, for my live fire, because I have two broad categories of live fire sessions, I usually alter the, alternate them between them. One is focused on fundamentals. The other is more like a mini stage. So usually right before the major matches, I would do more mini stage drive, uh, live fire sessions. Um, the reason obviously is to get, I think, because um, there's scenarios where um, I have to get used to, um, be comfortable and also um, get more precise on some of the stuff I'm working on. For an example, transition uh, and enter exiting uh, positions, etc. So those definitely require a lot more. I mean, ideally, I would like to have three live fires per week. So I would do one fundamental session and two mini stages, right? That would be my perfect. But I mean, what I have, what I got. So I have to work with the time and my family and my work, and so, so that's all I got. Is I usually if I have only one live fire per week, I would go do fundamentals. The next week I would do mini stage. So basically what I'm trying to do before major matches is to speed up that alternation. So I get more mini stages in uh, without kind of totally abandoning uh, fundamentals, which I always work on. So, yeah. Okay. And I assume then that there are certain things you're working on with these small stages, these mini stages. Right. Okay. So, yeah, so basically, I think there is a limited permutation or combination of scenarios in USPSC or IPSC. Uh, I remember I listened to Eric Rafael's interview. He said one thing which kind of strikes me is, uh, and in practical shooting, knowledge is the is kind of the key. And I was like, what kind of knowledge, right? I mean, when he talks about knowledge, I think he refers to how you run this scenario without even practicing it. So that ties back to his approaching training is he always run this setup once, once only, he doesn't repeat it, right? So his training is high round count and only run each scenario once, that's it. I mean, for me, I mean, at least I haven't, I definitely have not got to that level at all. So, I mean, I can, I can run this scenario as brand new, like a cold round, then I would feel, okay, here I can do better by doing X, and then there I can do better by doing Y. So I wanted to do that again, just to make sure I get to what I wanted, right? So that's where I think mini stages are important. Like you can put put a lot of permutations or combinations into those drills or training where you get yourself accustomed to certain movements, how the side's gonna look like, how your body is gonna feel like, um, some awkward positions for sure, which you definitely will see at some point in a match, right? So that's kind of where I think those mini stages are just accumulating your knowledge. The knowledge is a broad description of 
you know, of everything pretty much. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit abstract, but I think, I think Eric was, I mean, in that interview was definitely right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're just building your encyclopedia of knowledge. Exactly. So when you see it in a stage, you're like, oh, this is what I do. Yes. I gotcha. Yeah. That is, I, and I mean, I look at there's two goats in shooting, one being Eric Grafell. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, modern day goat, if you want to call it that. And I look at, uh, Rob Latham as being the long term goat. Cause the guy started winning back in the nineties and he's still winning today. Yeah. You know? So, mm-hmm. but yeah, Eric Grafell is completely on a different level. Yeah. That guy is amazing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still watching his videos today. It's like, this dude is crazy good. <laughs> Yeah, his video is interesting too because keep in mind he only does that run once. He doesn't try to repeat it and put it on Instagram or Facebook. So whatever he does, it's like a cold run for him. I mean, it's just amazing, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> that's illegal. <laughs> wow, that's ridiculous. So, what does your schedule look like this year? Uh, for major matches, I usually shoot the uh, shoot the double tap championship, which is close to home, uh, two hours drive. Uh, that's usually the first major I have uh, in the year. As I described, I have like two kids. Well, see, my schedule totally depends on my time availability. I don't shoot right. a lot of major matches in the past four or five years. Probably like two majors every year or three at most is because my boys they play hockey and uh, one plays travel since eight years old and you know the hockey parent it's like taking them to the rink stay there and you know drive home then travel to other states to play tournaments etc i literally spend double the uh, time amount of time i spend on my shooting with my son playing his hockey <laughs> so um so this year things could change a little bit because my older one is going to college um, and I might have a little bit more time. So I'm planning four majors this year. Uh, I got the double tab, I have the Dragon's Cup, then I have Area 3 and then CO Nationals. So those are the four I'm planning right now. Okay. Yeah. So you're not shooting Area 4 this year, you're just going to shoot Area 3. Yeah, that's right. It's It's just... Yeah, the area four happens after CAO Nationals. I don't know yet. I mean, see, there's an, there's an, uh, I, I wanted to shoot production nationals too. Uh, so, but I don't know if I can get a spot. So if I do, mm. I will, yeah, I will just practice between CAO and production nationals. I don't think I would have the time to shoot any major during that time. It's only like 30 days. Um, that's where, yeah, right. I, I would love to shoot area four. It's just the, the schedule, the timing isn't very good for me. Yeah. Okay. I got you. So you're going to drive up to Nebraska and shoot area three, huh? Not driving. I'm going to fly. <laughs> oh, okay. You're going to fly. So okay. It's too far to drive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How far of a, how far is it from where you are to area uh, three? Area three is probably like 12 hours. I think more than 12. Oh uh, yeah. That would be a long drive for a, very long. yeah. Yeah. For a one day match for sure be spending more time driving than you would be yeah. actually at the match. So, mm-hmm. so then I take it, you're going to fly to CMP as well then. Yes. Okay. Hopefully fingers crossed. Everything goes well with the, um, travel. Mm-hmm. We've talked to a few people on the podcast that what the first nationals I shot, we ran into a Canadian couple that was shooting with us and they almost didn't have guns to shoot. Wow. Because their guns went to a different airport and then they had one hour to get from Frostproof to Tampa to pick them up because they were being shipped to Houston to a warehouse where the guy on the phone told them, uh, if they make it to that warehouse, you'll never see them again. They're gone for good. Wow. Yeah. So they were like, what? You know, they had to drive as fast as they could to get from Frostproof to Tampa to pick up those guns. I was like, oh my, I would be so mad. <laughs> Did they make it? So. They did. Oh, they nice. made it. They got their guns. Yeah. But I was like, that is terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine a worse story other than they never made it. You know what I mean? To go and shoot <laughs> right. nationals and you don't have a gun to shoot nationals. Holy cow. That would suck. Yeah. So 
my part of well you, before i get to that question i want to back up to your dry fire you said 30 to 45 minutes is that mm -hmm. every day uh every day that i'm not on the range doing live fire so if i do one live fire per week then i would be dry firing six days a week so i just okay. make sure i i you know i handle my gun every day whether it's live fire or dry fire but i don't usually do multiple se sessions whether it's a combination of live and dry or just multiple dry fire. Well, there's a reason I, I don't do that. I know Fonsic talked about, you know, in his early days, he does two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. I mean, yeah. part of the being old is because I don't grow up <laughs> shooting guns, right? My body isn't right. built to hold the gun tightly for hours with no end, right? So I... I, at the very, very beginning, I did try that and God gave me tendonitis, you know, on mm. the, on the fingers and the shoulder and et cetera. So I'm just trying to kind of, I guess for people who started shooting at 12, 14, you know, their bodies are custom to this kind of uh, repetitive use. Um, right. So they can actually handle a larger amount of, uh, yeah, dry firing or live firing. But for older people, I think it's, yeah, it's just counterproductive, I believe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. I didn't find this sport until I was in my 50s, so. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> okay. I, I, I'm right there with you. I get I get tennis elbow if I yeah. do it too much. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. so your dry fire, though, is it all just your basic fundamentals, or do you try to put together little mini stages in dry fire, too? Uh, I do. I actually do three types of dry firing I and it's almost the same almost most of the times so I do dry firing one is I usually start with fundamentals gun handling mainly um, like jaw reload um, etc then in between I do mini scenarios not stages because my house is not big enough uh, to put up <laughs> stages or mini stages so it's usually four targets five at most three four and it's like drawing, right? Engage two, do a reload on the move, engage the last. If there's a fourth, then I would do a wide transition to the fourth. It's such kind of a general description, but I do vary that every day. So that part is not constant. It changes day from day. Then I, in the end, I mean, finishing up, I always do this drill. I think Ben's book has it. It's a trigger press at speed. Um, personally, I believe it's one of the most important drill in dry fire. You should be working on every day, every time you do dry fire. Uh, the reason being, well, for me, I started as a, as a hoser. I mean, there are two types, right? Hoser and turtle. And yeah. I'm always a hoser. And, and I'm the uh, turtle. This, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this drill just kind of really showed me, um, Trigger control is the single most important uh, technique you have to master um, if you wanted to shoot at high level. So yeah, so I think uh, I mean, yeah. So that that definitely that's a, that's the single most important drill for me. So I do it every day when I'm doing dry fire. Okay. That's where I end my dry fire with trigger press at speed. Oh, so you do that at the end? At the end, yes. Okay. Yeah, Ben has a drill that um, I really like because I hate starting off dry fire cold. Hmm. Like, I feel like it takes me a while to get going if I do that. Yeah. So he ha he has that drill, I can't remember the name of it now, where you put your timer down, like by where your holster is. You put your hands up and when the, you know, in like a surrender position. Mm -hmm. And when the tone goes you quickly, as fast as you can, you slap the timer um, to see how quick you can do it, um, which I, I like a lot because I find that if I yeah. do that just five or six times, now my draw is almost um, as good as it's going to get when I start. So I really like that drill a lot. And I find I can, I can usually, they say the, the tone is about three-tenths of a second. I can usually get it about 0.29, so I can usually hit it just before nice. it's done. So it's a good warm-up for me. That, uh, yeah, so I'm going to have to I've, – I've got some of his books, and I know the trigger press you're talking about mm -hmm. at speed. I'm going to – I may have to incorporate that in. I kind of like yeah. how you do that. 
yeah, that definitely helps. And I like that warm up. Um, so one thing I wanted to add to my dry fire is, so I see, I say I dry fire 30 to 45 minutes, but overall the time is usually an hour. Reason being, I spend 10 minutes stretch, warm up, not related to gong stuff, just regular stretch, warm up. Then after the dry fire, I do a little bit of cool down. Reason being, I have injured myself in dry fires in the past, so yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, as a, as a, as a older people, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> as you, yeah. So sometimes I do push myself and that's where things could, uh, yeah. You know, some of the body parts can't take it anymore. And, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. When, once you make that switch from fast twitch muscle to slow twitch muscle, everything, <laughs> yeah. the whole game changes. Yes. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yep. All right. Uh, that's interesting. So, all right, now I'm going to ask you the question about world shoot because you've you've changed my entire question now. My my initial question was, did you have any in, desire or intention to ever compete at the world shoot, which you've answered? Mm -hmm. But now, if we look back at your schedule, um, are you? Who knows if this world shoot will ever happen the way it's going? Um, but. In the future, you have to shoot those IPSC matches. So do mm -hmm. you ever plan on adjusting your schedule for those? Absolutely. Yeah, IPSC uh, nationals is always on my radar. Um, so I do check with um, the USPSC organization on you know, which matches are qualifying matches for world shoots, uh, team selection. Um, this year, it's not going to be. I think it's, uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's clear. Um, Next year and the year after, I do plan to shoot IPSC Nationals. Uh, I also make sure my guns, my gear are IPSC legal. Uh, always my consideration, because they're, with the rules constantly changing USPSC, I mean, there are a lot of parts. I mean, you can add on, you can do stuff, which right. are probably not legal. I mean, most, a lot of them are not legal for IPSC. So I try to maintain my gear to be IPSC legal so I don't have to retrain. Um, in case I get to shoot that, so, yeah. Okay, so the two matches this year then um, are not right. for, okay, they don't they don't qualify at, for anything. At least for now, yeah. I mean, I did ask, um, I think I asked the president of USPSC, are, is World Shoots uh, gonna be three, like three every, once every three years, or because this one, this year's World Shoots supposed to happen in 2020 the next year we're going to have another world shoot i think no one knows that answer right now yeah uh, right. but it's not likely to happen like that so most likely they're going to space the next one two years after this year's world shoot so it almost seems i almost feel like they should probably just even with you know some of the travel restrictions still going on do you just cancel it and yeah. put it back in 2023 and then keep the normal schedule you know yeah, that's another possibility. But yeah, again, I don't think anyone knows the answer for right. sure yet. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even think they know the people who right. make the determination. So. Mm -hmm. So, what does your mental preparation look like? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I really don't have any <laughs> official <laughs> mental preparation strategy or plan. Um, so yeah, be honest, that's an area I need to work on. Uh, I did read the books um, with Winning in Mind and a whole lot of other books too. I mean, the, the problem for me is I couldn't just internalize those concepts in those books. For some reason, maybe it's because I have a very stubborn mind myself or something, so I don't know. Um, but usually I just try to stay calm and try to focus on the process and uh, do the best I can. Uh, again, I think I mentioned, I don't try to beat anyone. Um, maybe because I guess personality wise, I'm not kind of alpha male type, um, but I'm a very uh, detail oriented person. So that makes it easy for me to focus on the process with no distraction. I think it helps me in that perspective. Um, but other than that, I really don't have any um, consistent or official mental preparation for matches. Yeah, 
Okay. You seem also like a very analytical person, especially with your background. Yeah, I kind of analyze stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that's if you're going to self-diagnose and get to that next level, mm-hmm. I think that's critical that you have that ability to be analytical like that. So yeah, I, I can see where, and I also feel like people who are very analytical can a lot of times maintain more of an even keel. Like they don't have a lot of highs and lows. So because they're more focused on the process and, you know, analyzing, Oh, I, I need to keep it to this and do this. So I'm yeah. sure that plays well for you. All right, so what does your um, make ready slash visualization look like? Um, So I typically would visualize in third-person view uh, when I'm making ready. Uh, I do first-person view visualization when I'm walking the stage. So that's kind of my, um, I guess it's a strategy or it's, it's an approach. Uh, I usually do it twice uh, during make ready and then I'm ready. Um, and the other thing that I think it's important is to kind of, I mean, I, I still get, get distracted uh, sometimes by people just talking while I'm making ready. I mean, I don't know how to kind of block that out. So I kind of just, uh, I use those uh, noise canceling uh, earbuds, right? I mean, you can, there's a, there's a plug at the end. You can plug it on, then you get the maximum effect. It's almost like a foam earbud. And I do that in matches. So I don't hear what people are talking. I mean, vaguely I can hear some, but it helps me. Um, but I, I, I believe in general, less distraction is just always helpful during make ready because it can, I mean, where you're visualizing and you hear someone talking to you like, Dazi is gonna do this in six seconds. Okay. so. That totally distracts you and, uh, you know, I mean, at least distracts me. And uh, that's kind of the thing I would like people could stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but I try my best to block it out. So, yeah. Um, I may have to cut this out because if Phil Strader listens to this, <laughs> he may use it as a strategy to sabotage your performance. Yeah, so I, that's why I probably will double up my ear. Yeah, ear protection. Uh, <laughs> national, you, you should just wear like these big earmuffs that say anti Phil Strader on it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't think it in fact impacts everybody, but it definitely impacts me. So make ready's routine is definitely make sure I don't hear what people are talking about and just visualize twice in third person view. Yeah, that's all. All right, so that's that's interesting that you do third person view in your make ready. How how does that look? I mean, are you looking so I'm trying to put that into perspective. Mm-hmm. Are you looking at the entire stage from like above and behind or how does that look? Just like my GoPro Max on the ground. So that's that's a benefit of you oh. video yourself and watch your shooting all the time. You know how a perfect round would look like. And you just rehearse that during the make ready twice. You're gonna visualize how you're gonna, you know, enter the position perfectly, and then leave that. So I think the benefit of doing just third-person view is you don't. I mean, there's just so much more details in the first-person view. To be honest, that's where when you walk the stage, you have the time and you have the mental capacity to do that more detailed uh, visualization. Third-person view is better i think at make ready because you're you're standing there you you do i mean of course you can do as long as you want maybe within a limit but still i mean you have this urgency um by being on the spot and you don't really have all that time and bandwidth to do a so detailed uh, visualization in first person view so third person view kind of ties everything together from start to end and that's your perfect round that's what you're trying to create in your execution so that's very interesting i think you're the first person who said it like that that's that's very interesting so when you're doing your walkthrough in your first person are you 
calculating like where you need to aim on the targets for these things and all of that or absolutely yes um, okay so respect every target including open targets which you people tend to ignore <laughs> yeah right um, oh i can blast through that one right <laughs> the, <laughs> the challenge yeah i think the lesson i learned is yeah it's an open target but have you seen it here in this configuration right mm. maybe it's upside down maybe it's sideways maybe it's next it's a wide transition from a mini popper it's an open but how much that transition is going to look like from your eyes like how you're going to turn your head how much you need to turn so yeah definitely that's why i said first person uh, view visualization requires a lot of details i mean you have to look at all the details and uh it takes time yeah um so you know you are very intriguing dazi i'm gonna say that you as you were talking, in my mind, I'm like, this guy would make a great documentary, <laughs> meaning follow you around with a camera at nationals and just analyze what you're doing and how you're doing things. Now, that's very, very interesting. Thank you. you are very detailed oriented for sure. I can see exactly now why you ended up where you did in a very stacked carry optics nationals. That's very impressive. Thank you. Um, Shoot, what was the, uh, you know, you mentioned something about when you're doing your third party or a third person view, you know what a perfect stage looks like. I mean, I yeah. know what a perfect stage looks like, but then my mm -hmm. stages look like three stooges. <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't quite perfected visualizing perfection and doing perfection. <laughs> right. I, I mean, it's I, the, the thing is. The shooting, the USPSC sport is a sport full of regrets. I mean, no one ever does get a perfect run of a stage. But I mean, people, I mean, we should strive for a perfect run, right? Um, but even if I visualize it many times, how this perfect run is going to look like from my GoPro Max, and it's, there's still hiccups, <laughs> mostly, I mean, 99% of the time. But I think it touches on the other side of the mental game is uh, I used to dwell on those hiccups a lot. I would talk to other people about those pitfalls, you know, the, the, you know, the, the hiccup on the reload, uh, you know, like uh, overstep here. Then, you know, later I kind of learned those just happen all the time. You can't dwell on them. You have to spend your mental energy somewhere else, which is more productive, right? the next stage for an example so yeah but just have to accept the game as it is like it's a game full of regrets for most people yeah There's okay no, no perfect run yeah <laughs> even even i saw on your instagram one of an older post where you mm -hmm. show your um qualification and all your hundred runs on the classifiers <laughs> Do you still analyze those and go, even though it's a hundred run, I could have been better here, there, and somewhere else? Yeah. So one kind of insider knowledge, you, you cannot imagine how many screwed up jaws I had in those hundo <laughs> rounds. I can tell you it's 50%. 50% of the hundo rounds I had on those classifiers, the jaws are not perfect at all. They're, yeah, you just have to deal with it and, of course, practice strive for a perfect jaw every time, but it's just not, it's not going to happen. Um, maybe at the higher level, you know, for the pro shooters, for the top shooters, they have a much less probability of having a screwed up jaw, um, but still it's going to happen. Um, just have to deal with it and through with a bad draw. Um, that's also a training tape I gave to people. Don't just stop when you have a bad draw in a drill because you're going to shoot a match or at least the first few targets in an array with a bad draw or in a classifier, you have to shoot the whole thing with a bad draw. You still need to perform, right? So, yeah. Okay. I hear you. Yeah. So, so you, are, you... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, well, I was going to say you, you've become accepting somewhat during the match. Yeah. You accept what's occurred, move yes. along. Because I noticed um, on one of your, I'm looking over there because that's where the that's where it was on the computer screen. Um, you had posted, I want to say it was, it might have been Dragon's Cup or one of them, but it was from 2020. 
I believe. And you you had uh, posted a video of a stage you did, and you were moving from right to left, and everything looked good. But in your comments, you said, I kind of fumbled my reload because I was worried yeah. about breaking the 180. And I was like, wow, I didn't even really... It looked good, but I wasn't watching your reload. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're the one doing it. So you typically, when you're doing it live, you're like, oh, crap. Mm -hmm. So yeah. very uh, interesting yeah, that, that you're honest like that, too. Yeah, that happens all the time, to be honest. I mean, that's why I say this sport, this game is full of regrets. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it may look like a perfect round, but the person doing it knows, you know, here I screwed up. A little bit, maybe, but I did. So, yeah. Now, is are those the things you work on in your dry fire? Then, like you're you're yeah. getting your draw perfect every time, or? Yeah, absolutely. So, getting to the perfect uh, execution is the main focus. That's why um, I spend. I mean, dry firing. I mentioned there are like three segments, right? On the fundamentals part, I definitely strive for consistency. I don't, yeah, so one thing I don't do, probably most people do is to use a part-time. I I haven't used a part-time for four or five years, to be honest. I just use the timer wow. as a starting. Yeah, because I, the thing is, interestingly, is um, I almost know how fast I'm doing things right now, but I really care is can I do this consistently good, like well, perfect. I mean, I want, if I have 10 draws, I don't want it to have three bad draws. I want it to have maybe one or maybe zero. And I'm not striving for to hit a 0.5 part-time, uh, but I do know I'm doing a sub-second sub draw, which is fine, you know. Um, so timer-wise, um, I would say, I guess for people who just started, part-time is very important. But once you kind of know in your head how fast you're doing things, your mental focus should really be on the process or the execution itself, making sure you remember or, you know, you sense all the feelings, all your sensory parts of your body, you know what the perfect draw is, right? And uh, you can try to repeat that. Um, I think that's, a, that's pretty helpful um, to most people, I would say. People should try it. Yeah, try to just focus on the process instead of trying to race to the part-time. Um, I used to do that part-time uh, pretty heavily. I don't think it's it's bad, but it's not as productive as uh, probably people think. Yeah. Okay. Now, do you ever, like, with? I'll just keep with the drill, I mean the uh, draw, because that's an easy one. Yeah. But do you ever get back in and break it down into micro drills? Uh, that, actually, I don't do. Yeah, I know. Uh, I do that for reload, but not for draws. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what? Yeah. What does a micro drill for you for reloads look like? Yeah. So reload is I broke it down to three parts. So first part is your hand. Of course, your main hand is going to push that mag release. I got a tiny hand, so I have to rotate. So that's at that same time you're gonna your weak hand is gonna go down to the mag pouch. So those two happen at the same time. So I would call that part one. And interestingly, as time goes by, I realized that time, that part one is actually the most time consuming part. And it's where you can actually save time on reload. It, mm. yeah, it may sound counterintuitive, but it's true. <laughs> and so the second part, of course, is to get the mag up. So your main hand is going to angle your gun a little bit and the mag is going to come up and aligned to the mag well. So that's part two. The third part is to insert a mag and making sure it's seated correctly. Um, so at the beginning, I try to speed up the second part, <laughs> the insertion itself. Uh, I think it's right. not a very good strategy. Yeah, I think the most time saving would come from how fast your hand can grab the mag and put it into or aligned or aimed at the mag well. Uh, the insertion part, I haven't actually trained that much at all. It's usually just one motion. Um, you know, once you're aligned, you visually confirm, and your weak hand is going to have to regrip, right? So, as part of that regripping motion, your palm is going to push it in hard. So, that's what I do yeah, for reload. Um, but I wanted to say my reload or my jaw, they're definitely not the fastest at all. 
um i know on instagram people yeah there's some crazy <laughs> right fast reloads and yeah calls. yeah right so i just strive for consistency and uh yeah the good good execution so okay uh yeah i mean i think consistency wins the game um but I tend to agree with you, too, that part one of that is the slowest because I find that when I have a slow reload, it's because I hesitated or I didn't, you know, my my weak hand or whatever you want to call it, support hand was slow to getting to the magazine and stuff like that. The rest of it seems to go fine once I get the process moving. Yeah. It's getting the whole process moving that seems to be the issue. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I've got for questions, Dazi. Do you have anything uh, else you'd like to add, or? Um, not really. Yeah, I'm really honored to be here to be on your podcast, Dave. Thank you so much. Oh for no, I'm honored to have you. Uh, you're a very impressive shooter, and and getting to talk to you is is very impressive. I look forward to meeting you in person at nationals and shaking your hand. Yeah, so. I'm looking forward to seeing you too. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Have yeah. a great day. You too. Yeah. Bye. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.